poetry. That's the perfect cue. Um, our next speaker, Philip Gross, is a novelist for adults and children. He's a T.S. Eliot prize-winning uh, poet for The Water Table, um, one, of m one of my favorite works of poetry. He's one of the um, judges for this year's Medicine Unboxed Creative Prize. So please welcome to the stage, Philip Gross. Thank you. The glorious and frustrating thing about being part of Unboxed is that every single item I've heard has sent me scurrying back to my small set list. Yeah, no, no, change it, change it. You must engage with that, with that. Because everything has put out its own very fine spider's webs which of course you feel on the skin, which takes me back to, to talk about skin yesterday and linking with what we've just heard. I would just add that skin, of course, is, is not our horizon, is it? It's where we stand looking out, unless anything goes wrong with it, in which case it, it might also be what holds us in. Absolutely, my favorite artist, the artist Paul Clay. His last few years were spent slowly dying of an illness which affected his skin and, and mucous membranes. So for all those surfaces, both outside and inside, which are sensitive and moist, and of course, he had also been exiled in those last years, so that was another of those forced migrations. This is Paul Clay, the late style. Came to painting on burlap, not for lack of fine paper or canvas. See the effort of scraping the paint across that surface, almost pain and the stuttering, crude, and approximate edge. His own skin drying scleroderma, paint on that. The opposite of watercolor, where juice and gravity take us with ideas of their own, but sackcloth, paint that dries before it's left its palette, that has to be dragged, already crusted, there could be despair in this, or freedom, this knowing we're already too late. That kettle drummer, he made almost nothing but his drum. Like the broadcasts hammering the airwaves nightly into the shape of a war, like waking in the darkness, your own heart thumping, but no other edge to your body, lost sensation of its borders. Just this, dull percussions surging in, out, as sure as the tide, if a tide could be dry. If you can't help but hear the drumming, if there's nowhere even with the Alps between you at a far enough remove, then, as your canvases are hung, skewed, decadent, fenced round, degenerate with crude graffiti, as your own skin tightens on its bone cage, be the bold 
bald mark on what you can lay hands on. Be the drumskin beating till it rips, still beating. Don't say beaten, even then. Thank you. One of the inner surfaces we glimpsed yesterday, shockingly and movingly, was the outer membrane of a person's living heart. Hearts, of course, bear such freight, both in, in metaphor and life. Almost everything I, I start out writing about bodies ends up as, in some sense, being a love song. And this is one, two, okay, yes, my wife. It, it's called Fire Balloon Heart. Still to winter a night to be lingering, but off the track, beyond this shrubbery, those two are struggling in earnest tenderly to get it up, their frail near globe of a papery fire balloon, lopsiding again and again, till they steady its saucer of pale slack flame between them. Wait, lift it, help it, uncertainly leave. It's a red glowing heart, ah, you could say, or there are shopfuls of Valentine kitsch. We're three times their age, hearts as tough as lorry tires to have got us this far, though apt to trip and flutter. Yours with, the doctor looks up from her stethoscope trance, its murmur, listen, it says, steady now, take care. And one more heart, and yes, I, I will come back to the, the theme word of field, which I was offered. We're closing in on it. This does come from a book called Deep Field, for a reason which I will explain before long. But it, and almost everything you'll hear after this is in this helpless gravitational orbit around the old age final years and loss of language of my father, who was also a wartime exile. And he was also one of those people who owed a large part of his life to science and medicine, so thank you all. Um, you collectively gave him the last 21 years of his life after quite a major heart attack that in any previous age would have ended him. And he gladly counted first his days and then his, his years beyond that and said, look, I'm 15 years old in my second life. <laughs> and at the end, when, when he was losing almost everything that gave his life any sense of meaning and being at home in it when he was losing language and sight and hearing and memory. 
if it isn't a, can I say, heartless thing to ask, one starts thinking of those, those ancient myths in, in which you are offered a gift. What would you want? Well, that, that I, I live forever, that my heart goes on beating. Well, yes, yes, or no. This is called mule. Patched up, canvas frayed and stitched around the seams, your heart, I'm not talking poetry here, but the infarct and scar tissue, crumpled tough as the leaky gray knapsack you'd never get rid of, tool bag, greasy with touch, clanking with the implements you can't name, can't carry it, can't lay it down, or it you. Stout heart, a quarter of a century since it first stopped, my new life, you said, counting days, then years, knuckle-tapping your chest. No worries about old age, you said. This'll see to it. Wrong. Dear heart, old retainer, out, way out on some frontier too far of the empire, I see tracklessness, rock scrub, and the one survivor of the massacre, limp, speechless, strapped to the back of the mule, he'd whacked and chibied for years as it dawdled and stumbled and kicked back. Now, unstoppable, faithful beyond sense or pity, it plods, toting him back to tell, to try to tell, where words might go, but not return. Of course, I realize that, that the chance anecdote that ends, ends on is a story from a, a way back Afghan war. Now, always a frontier. But also, the fact that you can't tell what you saw there beyond the frontiers was, was very literally so in the case of a man whose frontier more and more was that he was losing all his language. This was a man who had once spoken five languages well and gradually they all crumbled. But starting in, in a fairly harmless way, as with actually most of us at any age who just lose words, it's only beyond the age of 60 that you start noticing when you do and thinking, uh-uh. But, but, you know, <laughs> where things are when they aren't in words is a question. One day you woke to find that you'd lost barley, oats, wheat, tried each of your five languages and nothing answered to its name. You stared through a 60-year gap in the trees, past the farmhouse, out into the fields, all angled, small, pre-Soviet, of wordlessness. What you were seeing there wasn't nothing. This one, you tensed your fingers upwards, and this, your fingers trembled, dangled. Oats? Yes. Yes, and that itching and scratching down the back of your neck 
was threshed husks in the shade of a barn. Later, Hordeum and Triticum came to you, then some English, some Estonian. But you'd been back there in the gone place, absolutely, with each ding and zich. You'd been it, and no words between. I don't think any poem on its own is an answer. You know, if they work, they ask more questions beyond it. And what sounds like an answer at the end of, of that one comes from a fairly early moment in that process in, in which I could think, I could hope that experience was there beyond words intact and that words were this membrane that might thicken and dry. But each of us, kind of beyond that, that frontier between I and you, I and him, were still exactly who we were. Whether it was as easy to give that answer as the process went on, I'm not sure. No peace in your deafness just clangorous muting, then by degrees, an expressive aphasia, say the doctor's notes. Too true. As if released from 90 years of reticence, the sentences unreal in grand gestural sweeps, like starlings wheeling, a high rhetoric in which only you seem not to know that the meaning is gone. We gathered elsewhere, maybe, but from here it's all rattle and flux, till a stray phrase drops from the sky. Uh, but anyway, you know? You know where you are. Me, I'm the boy who turns at the call of a bird that seemed to speak a syllable, his name in the darkening wood. I'll read one or two more things that come from that same sequence, which incidentally is called something like the sea. Thinking of, of what we heard last night. Or you beat, you can't let go at beating, at a lost, against the nothing there, the not word. Stop, start, and unstoppable. You beat against the glass, which being nothing, cannot though it longs to break. You are my window, you say, suddenly word perfect. Window, not door. True, there's no way out of this, this once and onlyness, this body. Window of the senses, fogging with the effort. Words mouthed at the glass, the ache of faces, strangers, loved ones peering in. last. I wish I could say we sat for half an hour in silence. Nothing needed to be said. It isn't true. You can't stop rattling a box of empty syllables while something needs. It cries out for the saying. Is this it? I write on your word pad. I mime. Is this? Is this? 
help me, who, looking in the window now, could say, which of us was the one deprived of speech? I must own up to the words field now. Um, and the title of the book from which I've, I've read these last few things, which is the book about my father's loss of language, it's called Deep Field, which in, in my mind is a phrase that, that trickles off in lots of ways. One of, one of which is the Im image that keeps on coming back of the sea and, and in his last years, my father was one of those anglers who, who wasn't really interested in the fish at all. It was just an excuse, not only to be with the sea, but somehow to connect yourself to it by means of that fine line. So there is something Anglo-Saxon in, in the echo of, of, of that, of the sea as a, as a deep field plowed by ships, but as we heard last night, it, it goes unthinkably far down. But much more recently than that is the image that you might be able to glimpse on, on the front of this book, which is looking the other way. This is Hubble. This is Hubble looking outwards into the furthest reaches of our, uh, of our known universe and beyond. There was, there was one survey it did, which was called the Deep Field Study. And for once, its mission was not to, was not to see things, actually. Its mission was to see between the visible things, because of course the moment you've seen an object you can't see beyond it. And it went to the sparsest area of the sky and just tracked it. And every time it saw two visible objects, it looked back between them. Well, I say back because we know that the further we look out, as we also heard yesterday, the further we are looking back in time. So, in four or five fairly brief sections that kind of hang off each other as little stars, this is deep field. Old man Hubble, old Hubble the fisherman sat at the edge of the deep dark I remember your nights, John, on the rocks at Penley Point, the tide's slow shrugs and sighing in its sleep, your fishing rod a thin excuse to catch the sun. He sat, old Hubble in his orbit, wiping at his one skewed lens, blinking down into space and suddenly, like you, adrift, because no direction is not up or down. And so we stumble, that's the catch, the fall, the vertigo.
two minutes point five of sky is plenty to see all that's ever. Look between, again, always between, whatever's visible to any eye or mind, whatever can be imaged. 342 exposures, 100 hours, 2,000 galaxies. It turns out darkness is the hardest thing to find. Look at the place where space is most that, as if we could peer around the corners of a universe where Foursquare might not be the case, out through a window between matter, between light into... What did we hope to catch a parting glimpse of? Or who? Lens grinders in space. Shaving shades of a shade of degrees from the angles that the, para the parabolic mirror enfolds, petals of its lotus. Yes, but wasn't the greater wonder that with its vision restored, what the million dollar looking glass was turned to was the otherness, radio silence, was any which way but here, was not, absolutely not us. The space between the words, the blur, is where I turn to try to find you, John. If I could catch the silence there, Take space, take any space that's deep enough between the language and the atrophy the MRI reveals, the misplaced memories, the glare of history. Still, we may be there, maybe we may be. <coughs> and lastly, old man Hubble says, look, not look for, it's the least of signs he's after, then the space between them. He sits listening for rumors. The more faint, the truer. Not of the end, but the beginning. Wait, he says, until with time a few stray photons may come straggling in from space, like refugees from the first disaster to which we owe everything and which is with us everywhere, in every distance, equally. There is one later book, which is also essentially his book, um, not about language, but it, about one frontier beyond that, which is the last months of coming to the edge of our lives and bodies and beyond it. It's a book predictably called Later. But the extraordinary thing I, I, I was noticing at the end was the the islands of light into what you could could figure as if, if you like enclosing darkness in him including the fact that he could still play chess very well you know, I'm, I'm not bad but I could only just hold level and 
when he was in care at that stage when, I'm not saying this in a hostile way towards people who do a tremendously vital, underrated job of care. People were tending to lean a little bit too, too close to him and call him dear in rather too loud a voice. Once in a while, I just wanted to say something without words, and it involved bringing my dad's chess set in. If any of you play, you will recognize the word Nimzo-Indian as a fairly fiendish opening. Now that all other bearings have led him astray to the last but one ward, now that even the ensuite bathroom keeps eluding him like socks or what he started out for from his chair, or family faces, which of us might come in wearing whose from when, now what can I do but here? The four-square board, the rattling out of chessmen. He looks up. I set him out white that's gone amber with touch, and he's playing a stout Nimzo Indian, six moves or more ahead, away from this new scrubbed room with fragments of him on one shelf, his lips moving. Under his breath, the cut glass combinations on a waiter's silver tray of poise and tremor upheld, tinkling, nothing spilled yet but angles of light. When he slips, yes, his fingertips dither, then go to my night, not his own. It's the highest mistake, such as God might have made, to reach so deep into world that maybe that is what he longed for. He forgot himself in it. We've got all kinds of, of responsibilities when we write. Uh, um, and I am aware of, of the thought of my mother, who died several years before my father. And she would never have said this, which is part of the problem. But it, it would have seemed quite right to her that I, I might have written and published two books about my father. and. Where's her book? Well, this at least is, uh, well, this is her poem and his, and it's also about boundaries being crossed out of our bodies into, in their case, ash. And those of you who were here yesterday will have heard people talking about the, the degree to which we inhabit or own our ashes. So this is, one thread I would like to offer back into that. And it, it, it's also from next year's book, which will be called Love Songs of Carbon. For six years on a high shelf in an upstairs bedroom, she was the only one who didn't change. Down here in the oxygen economy, we came and went, our carbon still mixed with water, breathing, moistening, drying. Yes, even our youngest there, etching his breath on, on, on the glass, now a smiley or oh, down in the mouth, now moon face dripping. 
he took time, the eldest, withering without her, needing ointments for his thinned and flaking skin. The sores on his shin did the weeping, the chemical bonds coming loose, letting parts of him go. As patient as she'd learnt to be in life, she waited, dressed and contained, in leather textured cardboard round a screw-topped urn. Six years till the day they could meet in all simplicity, at last entirely conversant with each other. Ash into ash for my broadcast scatter, and into a west wind for winnowing, chalkier flakes dropping free into wire-rooted ling, small gorse, bell heather, rabbit scuts, the finer grains fetched up, we flinch, then stay, yes, why not let them dust us, lifting towards Sheep's Tor, North Hessery Tor, Great Mist Tor, and the deeper moor, beyond whatever skyline he or she had ever reached, while rain clouds come up over Cornwall like the grey Atlantic, generations wave on wave on way. I think where better to leave it, but in the sense, back in the sea. Thank you all. <laughs>